Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR. 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au. Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join your hosts Anne and Kevin the second Friday of every month on The Sewer Show between 5.30 and 6.30pm here on 3CR Community Radio. This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone in our community has value. Hi Anne, how are you doing? It's the uh, the fourth Friday of the month uh, and it's a bit unusual because we're supposed to be on the second Friday of the month, but we fill a gap if well, there's one here left. here we are again. <laughs> we've, we've popped up again on yet another Friday. I think we're, we've taken over the second and the fourth Fridays at this moment. If they leave a vacancy, we'll fill it, uh, and that's all That's all good because, you know, we're, we're more than happy to do so. And we're especially happy to do so this week um, after uh, having heard um, Jacob with his Friday rave, of course. Jacob is always full of uh, interesting thoughts for us, thought-provoking. He's a good warm-up. Well, I don't want to put, say it's a warm-up for us, but it's nice to come on after Jacob. In fact, he might be a hard act to follow. might be a better way to put it. <laughs> you got to watch your words. Anyway, so Jacob with his Friday Rave was fantastic. But this week uh, we have a very special guest, uh, someone who is fundamental to the school of modern, modern monetary theory. Uh, modern monetary the, theory. <laughs> modern, modern monetary theory. We have the one, the only, one of the founding members of modern monetary theory, the, um, the legendary Professor Bill Mitchell. Yes, I'm so excited that we got to speak with Bill. Who knew that I would become a, a groupie of economists? But Bill is, um, as you say, he's been he's legendary because he's been revolutionising the way we all think about the economy. And he was there at the founding of the School of Macroeconomics known as Modern Monetary Theory. In fact, I think he coined the phrase. Uh, and he's highly sought after as a speaker, so we're very lucky to get him and he was very generous with his time. He operates out of the University of Newcastle, so he's a homegrown thinker. He started his um, his, uh, his academia down here in Melbourne, so he's actually a Melbourne boy who's, who's moved to Newcastle, but he... Um, he studied uh, studied economics back in the 1970s at Melbourne Uni uh, when he was a bit of a, a radical lefty uni student. But uh, as you say, he's now based in, in Newcastle. And I hope we'll hear more of his uh, early story in another show. Uh, for this show, I think we'll hear more about what he has to say about current events. Uh, yes, but for people who don't know Bill, he is a professor of economics at the University of Newcastle where he is also the director of the Centre of Full Employment and Equity. A lot of people know Bill online through his blog, which he's been running for many years now on an almost daily basis. So you can catch up with Bill's latest thoughts at bilbo.economicoutlook.net. Excellent. Bill's been very generous with his, with his time, but before we spoke to Bill, we spoke with a mate of yours, a fellow that you've um, have had some dealings with in the past, a fellow called uh, Alex North. Uh, tell us about Alex. I met Alex through the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, and Alex is still very involved with the union as a campaigner. And I wanted to catch up with him to find out how the Australian Unemployed Workers Union might be responding, given that... Uh, the coalition has recently doubled the rate of new starts, so I thought it might be fun to speak with someone from the union. Well, that sounds like a, a, an excellent way to roll into the show. We've got uh, we've got 
a person from the present, a young fella coming uh, coming up through the ranks, and we've got a uh, a stalwart veteran uh, of modern monetary theory to, to follow up afterwards. Uh, this should be an interesting show. Might let Stephen Hale have the final word. And I understand too, uh, Kevin, that you've got a little bit in common with Bill and true to form with Bill's blog, uh, where he often talks about his interest in music, we might we might do a bit of a segue of our own. He's not just an economist, and he's also uh, uh, not a bad guitarist um, and, and has been playing in a band for many, many years. So we'll speak to him about that later on the show. But let's start off with uh, with the interview we had with Alex North. Before we hear from Professor Bill Mitchell, I'm really delighted to be able to speak with Alex North today. Alex, by way of introduction, would you mind describing what your role is with the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, the AUWU, and maybe give us a brief background on how you personally became involved with unemployment activism? Yeah, I'd love to, and thank you for having me on. So we're a national organisation with branches all across Australia, both regionally and in metropolitan areas. My role in the Australian Unemployed Workers Union is as the National Operations Coordinator. I coordinate a team of elected AEW officials, eight of them, who work in the national team. So I got involved with the AEW when I became unemployed. Uh, I was working originally as a warehouse worker and I was sacked after taking some uh, industrial action. And because I was under 25, I was referred to do the PATH program, you know, work in what they call youth PATH contracts, uh, which can be contracted out to places like Hungry Jacks. That was one of the big scandals, getting young people to work for $4 an hour. So I wanted to learn what rights I had. So I Googled the AEW, attended a meeting, got involved, started off as the Adelaide branch coordinator, then the SA state coordinator, and then eventually I got elected to the the national team uh, and I've been involved ever since. And now more recently, unemployed workers are on the receiving end of the Morrison stimulus package, which is, of course, in response to the pandemic virus. Perhaps you could run us through what the changes are to the unemployment benefit under the Morrison government stimulus packages and even what lessons you might draw from that, given that the Unemployed Workers Union has indeed been campaigning for so many years to raise the rate of New Start. Something quite remarkable happened on 22nd of March 2020. They announced that New Start would be effectively doubled, a raise of basically 5.50 a fortnight. Overnight, the coalition uh, had done what decades of Labor governments had failed to do raise the unemployment benefit to the poverty line and lift effectively almost a million Australians out of poverty. And we've got to keep in mind that right now, millions of social security recipients have been left behind, including the 700,000 people who are surviving on disability support mention and the over 200,000 people on carers payment and also the 2 million people on age pension because now the job seeker payment is actually higher than the age pension. It's time for freedom. Time for moving, it's time to begin. Yes, it's time. Time for changing, not deck cherry arranging. It's time to begin. Yes, it's time. What this has basically done is made the Razor Rate campaign historically redundant. I mean, who would have thought that uh, Scott Morrison's government would be the most radical <laughs> raiser of the unemployment benefit in Australian history since the benefit was introduced uh, in the 40s? The raise the rate campaign was pretty remarkable because 
In 2014, the Dole Bludgeon myth reached dizzying heights. The new uh, compulsory work for the Dole scheme was introduced and they had to do uh, 25 hours a week of free labour. And then we had all these hit pieces constantly in the media calling for crackdowns for the sake of the budget's deficit, for job snobs. And, and what the Raise the Rate campaign tried to do was completely shift the entire political discourse on welfare payments in Australia. And what it managed to achieve in just a few years is quite remarkable. But what the Raise the Rate movement failed to do was change the rate. Time for proving not slick manoeuvring It's time to hear Yes, it's time Time for poor folk Not for rich folk It's time for us Yes, it's time Time for children This was a huge movement in terms of federal and local levels of government. How modest was the the ask? It's a bit like Oliver Twist when he basically asked for, you know, please, sir, can I have some more? Uh, It was such a polite ask. It wasn't even to raise people out of poverty. What we've seen with the latest stimulus packages, these uh, increases in the job seeker allowance weren't from borrowed money, they weren't from taxpayers' money, they were from currency that was created in the normal process by government. And so now that we understand that government has unlimited fiscal capacity to raise new start job seeker, whatever you want to call it, has this realisation filtered through to the Australian Unemployed Workers Union that the only constraint that the government faces is ideology and not fiscal? Yes, um, absolutely it has. And we knew this wasn't really ever a question about whether or not we can afford it. The unemployment benefit needs to be as undesirable as possible. So difficult to access, so difficult to live on, that no one would in their right mind take it if they could get a job on the market at the lowest going wage. So to me, it's not just a question of the fact that we were aware that the state always had the fiscal power to do it. We, we are very, very conscious what the disciplinary role of keeping unemployment benefits low is for effectively the reserve army of labor. Do you think that this is going to be a game changer in making sure that job seeker unemployment benefits remain at a livable level? At some stage, they're talking about a snapback and you can already hear the Morrison government talking about how we're going to have to pay for this in years to come. What's your feeling about how you think the Morrison government might approach this in a few months when things start settling down? A snapback will come and it's going to be very savage. The idea that the government operates like a household and can run out of money and go bankrupt, it, it is going to be a hard idea to try to educate people about the real role of government deficits. All these gains around welfare were won by ordinary Australians. They're wins. So if we look back at the history of welfare in Australia, um, around the Great Depression, um, Victoria managed to win relief work, actually paid you know, public sector work through the work of the unemployed workers movement and the Central Strike Committee. And going ahead, it's going to have to be the same story as it was, unfortunately, in the 1930s. 
We have job seeker and job keeper, and already I see in that form of neoliberal poetry an attack on the unemployed. Speak to that narrative, the deserving and the undeserving poor, and how that might be playing out at the moment. The undeserving, undeserving poor is a very, very, very old argument that has its origins at least in the poor laws during the Tudor period in England. Ultimately, what it's about is about just dividing the unemployed and just in general, the working class, so there is no unity. You know, when we live in a scenario where there aren't enough jobs for everybody to be employed by Australia, um, we need this narrative to make it tolerable for why we subject people to these awful things, a, a payment that's so far below the poverty line where people literally have to skip meals to survive. The distinction between deserving and undeserving plays a fundamental role in keeping this system going. I'm predicting that we're going to see a, quite a strong narrative against the undeserving in about six months' time. That's my prediction. Where to from here for the AUW and its campaigns? Uh, right now, the line is keep the rate, and that includes all social security payments raised to at least the current rate of job seeker payment uh, with the coronavirus supplement. But the future of AW campaigning is probably going to be around from the full employment side. We've always demanded for the right to, to work, and we're going to be campaigning around the job guarantee, which we have been since 2014. Uh, so that's kind of where we're going in the future. Thanks so much for speaking with us today, Alex. Thank you very much, Anne and Kevin. Everyone keep up the struggle and for God's sakes, join your union. Thank you, Alex. Much appreciated. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Uh, It's Friday the 24th of April. A few weeks ago, we had the great privilege to speak to Professor Bill Mitchell, who uh, is one of the founders of Modern Monetary Theory. Uh, And I started the conversation asking him about some of the misconceptions that people have uh, about the economic impacts of the current stimulus packages. So here's our interview with Professor Bill Mitchell from uh, a few weeks ago. The government is currently spending large amounts of money to try and save or stimulate the economy. And the narrative we're getting from journalists and politicians is that the government will be borrowing money by selling government bonds and that we'll be paying off this debt for years to come. This is a commentary which is going on with many experienced uh, journalists, economists and politicians. How would you respond to that? Well, I mean, mostly these statements are nonsensical, to be polite. Throughout my childhood, the government was running deficits and issuing debt to match those deficits. And what were they doing with the deficits? They were building public infrastructure. They were building a first-class health system, first-class educational system secure electricity generation and all all of the other things which gave my generation all of these great things that the state had done. 
and I never once felt as though once I became an adult that I was burdened by the advantages that, that the welfare state and full employment and all the rest of it had given me. And it's the same today, that the, the idea that we have to run austerity, which is the logic of what you've just said, uh, we've got to run surpluses, that means government spending less than it's taxing, and we've got to have low levels of debt as a consequence because we don't want to burden our kids. Well, look at what the austerity does. It runs down educational systems. We've now got a, a cohort called the NEAT generation, N-E-E-T, not in education, employment or training. These are teenagers that are not, not learning, not being trained in schools or they're not working and they're going to be lost. We've got a rundown of our public infrastructure. We've got ridiculous uh, charges for electricity. We've got climate change. We've now got a health crisis. And our health systems around the world are proving to be extremely strained because we've underinvested in them in various ways in various countries. And we've now got an existential crisis on our hands where our very lives are under threat and we're all bunkered down in our individual dwellings because we're too scared to go out or we've been instructed to not go out because our health systems can no longer cope. So what sort of legacy are we leaving our kids through austerity? That's the legacy. My view is that the challenge for governments today amid this coronavirus crisis is to ensure that the good parts of the economy remain intact while we sort out the health crisis. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm guessing from what I read is that they'll find a vaccine will, for the time being, be able to come out of our houses again until the next virus comes along. In the meantime, if they don't keep the substance of the economy intact, what I mean by that is that they don't keep paying worker incomes, they don't protect casual workers, uh, if they don't do that, then you get the secondary effects like market collapses, uh, mortgages collapse, so you then get a sort of contagious financial crisis emerging because you get insolvencies and credit defaults and all the rest of it. If you don't do all of that, then when you get to the point that we've got a vaccine and we can feel safer in a health sense, then you've got a disaster on your hands the idea that you should worry about how to pay for all of this, well, we know how they're going to pay for it. They're typing numbers into bank accounts. And it's as simple as that. They, in the same way they pay for anything, in the Australian context, the Treasury tells the Department of Finance to do some accounting and instruct the central bank, the Reserve Bank of Australia, to type some numbers. At the moment, the numbers have more zeros on them than usual because the intervention's very large historically. And that's paid for. That's the end of the story. The suits and the masks and the ventilators, they're all, they're all supplied, they're all paid for. The, the bank accounts are all cleared, and that's the end of the story. The fact that they've got this obsession with issuing debt, and that's a, a legacy of the fixed exchange rate period, it's sort of irrelevant because the government can always repay that debt the Australian government's the issuer of that currency, and it's not like private debt at all. Private debt, we have to be able to continually generate 
earnings in the currency to pay back our debts, whereas the government can issue the currency whenever it wants. They don't have to issue the debt to cover their spending. The spending is happening. So can I just make this point absolutely clear? And I heard your interview with uh, Alan Kohler, which you go into some detail with the bonds and explaining how it's taking money from the left pocket and putting it in the right pocket. But what I'm understanding is that the, the whole issue of bonds to do with funding government spending is an historical reference that is no longer relevant, that bonds do not underpin government spending, that it's a concept that used to be relevant uh, with fixed exchange. But since we have a floating dollar, since 1983 in particular, the whole reference to bonds underwriting government spending is no longer relevant. Would that be correct? Yeah, I mean, the the relevance of bonds in the fixed exchange rate system was not that it funded government spending, but that they drain liquidity impacts of the government spending. The central bank was committed to maintaining a fixed exchange rate parity, and that meant it had to control how many dollars were in the system, including the foreign exchange markets. The deficits, of course, put dollars into the system, and if there were too many dollars in the system, then the exchange rate would start to fall because there'd be too many dollars relative to the demand for them. If there were too many dollars in the system, the exchange rate would start to depreciate. Now, under the fixed exchange rate system, that wasn't allowed to happen. And so the government had to work out a way to make sure there weren't too many dollars in the system. And one of the ways they could do that was if they spent them into existence and bought things and created public infrastructure and schools and stuff, they then had to drain those dollars back out of the system uh, in the form of issuing debt. That would reduce the liquidity in the system and that would replace the dollars with a debt instrument. Now, that's crude, but that's sort of what was going on. Now, once you have floating exchange rate, the central bank doesn't have to worry about maintaining the exchange rate, and so there's no long reason to issue any debt. At that point about the left and right pocket was in relation, in that interview with Alan Kohler, was in relation to the fact that now the Reserve Bank is buying significant volumes of debt in the bond markets under its so-called QE program. The government issues debt in what's called the primary market. And there's a certain nominated authorised dealers, they're called, and they make the market, to use the jargon. And what that means is that they bid it at an auction. Australian Office of Financial Management, which is part of Treasury, which runs these auctions, announces we want to raise X billion dollars next week. And they then invite bids for the bonds and the authorised dealers make the market by putting in the bids. Then those bonds that are sold to the authorised dealers go out into the secondary market and become traded on a daily basis. And what the Reserve Bank is currently doing is buying big volumes of that debt in that secondary market. What will eventually happen at the end of the crisis is that Almost all of the debt that's issued during this particular intervention will be held by the Reserve Bank, not by the private sector. Ultimately, what will happen is that that debt will mature, in other words, come up for repayment, uh, and the, the Treasury will pay the Reserve Bank money. Meantime, they're paying interest on that debt to the Reserve Bank, and the Reserve Bank, of course, is part of government. So it's the left pocket paying the right pocket or whichever way you want to construct it. So it's it's basically ridiculous to worry about any of that. 
what we've got to worry about is, is the stimulus or the intervention big enough? Is it the right sort of stimulus? Are they actually doing the right thing? And, you know, I wrote last week that I'm not happy with the job keeper allowance. I don't see why workers should take a 20% wage cut for a start. And I think that the government should be paying the workers, not the businesses. So they're the questions that are relevant is, is the stimulus big enough to save the situation? And is it in the right form, the right type of policies? Not whether, whether we're all going to be in penury at the end of this because we've got to pay back all this debt. That's not going to happen. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. You're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Normally on this show, I feature a local band, um, normally female bands, just because I reckon they're doing all the best stuff at the moment. Uh, however, our guest speaker, Bill Mitchell, plays in a band called Pressure Drop, uh, and we'll hear from him later on. But he also had an association with a bit of a local legend, Ross Hannaford. So I'm going to play something from Ross right now because I'd be crazy not to. Thank you. 
listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back, a show all about the economics and experience of unemployment and underemployment here on 3CR Community Radio. A few weeks ago, we interviewed Professor Bill Mitchell to get his views on how the government was handling the economic situation with the current coronavirus. So let's return to that interview. On that question of the magnitude of the Morrison government's stimulus packages and the way they've been targeted, I'm trying to imagine if Morrison was a student of yours and he was handing in his stimulus package paper, what would you give him out of 10? About five. Let's be fair, and I'm not a fan of the government, but let's be fair, they've been dragged a bit, I think. Their first stimulus was uh, very small, about 1.2% of GDP. Then a week later, they introduced their second part of it, which took it up to about 4.2% of GDP. That was, what, about $66 or something. That was obviously not going to be enough. And then last week, they brought in an extra $133 which takes it up to about 10% of GDP, approximately. So to be fair to them, they are responding. And they're breaking out of their whole fiscal austerity, surplus obsession mentality. That's gone. That's finished. And they'll find it very hard to reinstate that in the narrative. Thursday, I think it was, they just uh, nationalised childcare, basically. Yeah, this is what's happening in this environment. It's a moving feast. They've now nationalised childcare. I can't imagine the tension within the Liberal Party on the extreme right of the Liberal Party now trying to keep a straight face when the government has just basically abandoned all of their fiscal narrative and all of their ideological narrative and their warfare. That's very pragmatic, and I think that ScoMo is, is at the end of the day a pragmatist. Now, the question is, is that going to be enough? Probably not. If you're looking at interventions elsewhere, they're 15 to 20% of GDP. Are we going to have as bad a downturn as looks like happening in America. I mean, 6.6 million people filed for unemployment benefits in America last week. And in the previous week, it was 3.3 million. The unemployment rate has gone from 3.7% to close to 10% already in America in two weeks. In Australia, it's likely to go quite significantly higher than it is at the moment, but the JobKeeper allowance will probably keep it down they've realised that trying to run the austerity line and, oh, it'll be all right, the market will fix this, that's, that wasn't going to rub. So that's a tick. So that, that gets them a pass mark of five. Is it the right stimulus? I think that they could do much more. And I think that they could use this period to really change things. Because if you think about it, going into this crisis, we were already heading towards recession. We already were suffering from years of neoliberal neglect. The future of young people is really uh, precarious. The sort of advantages that I had as a kid because of the welfare state and full employment, the young kids now haven't got those advantages. And what choices are they going to have as ageing adults about retirement and things? It doesn't bear thinking about. And we've got degraded public infrastructure and we've got a climate crisis. So for me, I would have used this period of disruption and this period of uh, large-scale government intervention to force big changes in the gig economy. 
So they could have said, we'll pay all of the casual workers wages and we'll give them sick pay. You know, 25% of Australians don't have leave entitlements and other entitlements. They would have restored penalty rates to overcome that terrible decision a couple of years ago to hack into casual worker income. I would have brought in new legislation forcing the gig economy employers to stop treating them as independent entrepreneurs and instead treat them as employees and force them to pay entitlements. For all of the workers employed on March 1, I would have paid 100% of their salaries, not forced them to take a wage cut. And for all those who were unemployed on March 1st, I would have introduced a job guarantee at a socially inclusive minimum wage. This is not a normal crisis because it's not just a fall in spending, it's also there's supply side problems because factories are closed and their supply chains are being disrupted. So the last thing you want to do is just pump money willy-nilly into the economy because you run up against bottlenecks in supply and that can cause inflationary pressures. This is the typical end-of-the-war problem that we always experience during big wars. And so there's plenty of things that could be invested in that aren't going to be uh, supply-constricted right now that would help our climate crisis. For all of those other workers, like in hospitality and retail who are, can't work now because all the shops are closed, don't forget that just recently we had a massive bushfire crisis, which has destroyed a whole stack of regional infrastructure. There's no supply constraint in starting to alleviate some of that. And so you could offer redeployment to people at full wages to work on those sort of projects. The other problem is we face a food shortage now because we've closed the borders and a lot of our vegetable and fruit production is done by backpackers. And so you could redeploy workers who can't work in retail at the moment there rather than force them into unemployment, as long as you can maintain safe work environments and they're not ill. And so they're the sort of things that I would have thought about, sort of game-changing type interventions. What they've done is adopt what they call a hibernation model, and all they're doing is freeze-framing the existing structure of the economy, which was sick. I would have wanted them to actually freeze-frame it, but while they're doing that, get rid of some of the bad bits and promote things that we need for a future progressive agenda. Even before the health crisis, there was an agenda that needed to be executed to address the socio-ecological crisis, and I would have hoped that they'd use this stimulus to do that. Let's have a look at that now, and in fact, I'm going to quote yourself back at you. It's always dangerous. <laughs> uh, you gave a talk to the Melbourne Fabians earlier this year, and one of the things I noticed you said was we need social equity to deal with climate change. We've been speaking now about some of the structural issues that need addressing. And then I'm thinking about how we move forward into the future, remembering that we are still dealing with a climate crisis. So I'm very curious to hear about how you might articulate uh, how economic justice needs to be part of a response to the climate crisis and how those two things are interlinked and anything you've been thinking about in terms of a program to address that. Internationally, there's a, you know, all this talk about Green New Deal. Now, I don't like that terminology. What it is is a very broad brush climate action agenda which then marries into the agenda lots of liberal-type agendas. 
like in the American context, fixing up their medical system, student debt relief, wage equity, uh, anti-discrimination laws and all of the rest of it. But there's a huge debate as to whether that would be successful. And so a lot of uh, people are saying you shouldn't marry the social agendas with the climate agendas because you'll never get the right-wingers who hate the social agenda to agree to the climate agenda if they're part of a package, whereas you could probably get them to agree to the climate agenda without the social agenda. Now, my view is that will be a failed strategy because the social crisis that we have, the precarious work, the inequality, the falling uh, quality of our public infrastructure, failing medical systems and the rest of it, they're all linked to the climate and they're all linked in the way is that they're manifestations of neoliberalism. It's the overarching characteristics of neoliberalism that has to be addressed and when you address those, you have a chance of addressing the climate issue. So that's the first point. And the second point is that I've been a sort of long-term critic of the Greens because they tend to ignore broader issues relating to jobs, etc. So they go into communities and the Adani fiasco in the lead-up to the last national election here was a classic example of this disdain for local communities. What I mean by that is that the Greens see the issue, the climate issue, fine, but they offer no no hope for those communities. What we know is if you tell workers in a polluting operation that the operation's just got to shut down, the workers won't agree with you because if that means that they lose all their entitlements, their jobs, the community falls apart, then the workers will hang on to that job and oppose the climate change initiative. So if you go up to the Hunter Valley, you know, it's the largest coal exporting port in the world, Newcastle Harbour, and tell all those communities in Singleton and Musselbrook that we're just going to close down coal and feel good about it and then go back to Sydney or Melbourne, wherever the Greens are, then you're going to get massive resistance and it's, you won't get any political traction. And so what you have to do is, as part of the climate agenda, you have to have a cost-sharing framework. Now, a Canadian trade unionist in the mid-90s came up with the concept of a just transition. And the just transition is a framework for sharing the costs of reducing carbon-intensive production and consumption patterns. What a just transition framework has to do and be designed to do is put jobs at the centre of the climate action because whether we like it or not, jobs are at the centre of our our community stability, our family stability and our sense of well-being. We've got to give them options to still maintain their prosperity in material terms and their, their livelihoods. Just going in and saying, bang, you're not going to do it anymore, it's not going to ever work. And so climate activists have to put jobs front and centre. And uh, I formed a group with some leading Australians called Just 2030. Just means just, urgent, sustainable transformation. What that framework is going to provide is a comprehensive way of dealing with both the social problems and the ecological problems, but in a just way so that the the costs of the transformation are shared and minimised 
and jobs are always going to be at the centre of our policy agenda. Uh, we're not going to go up to Queensland and say, the Dani's got to stop. Of course it's got to stop. But what are you going to do for those communities instead? And that's going to be part of this Just 2030 framework. Jobs at the centre of climate action. Really looking forward to hearing more about that. I've been looking for myself. Where's the bucket? I mean, I think of it as the bucket that's going to hold all the great policies for the future. We'll be definitely looking out for that on Unemployed Workers Fight Back. An issue Anne and I have on this program is that we speak to well-regarded, well-renowned economists. Uh, We spoke with uh, Dr Stephen Hale, who is a lecturer in economics at Adelaide University. Bill Mitchell works all around the world for uh, various governments giving advice. Yet they seem to be blocked from mainstream media in Australia and... I wonder why this is. Uh, When I was speaking with Stephen Hale last week, I was asking him the questions and at one stage he reversed the conversation and asked me the question, which I'm going to broadcast now uh, a couple of weeks later because it's well worth asking this particular question. I do have a question which you should ask. Why do we not have on programs like Q&A, or 7.30, talking about macroeconomics, somebody like Bill Mitchell. Why are we not on Q&A? Why are we not on 7.30? I am happy to go on TV and debate any of them or all of them, any time at all. I'm not claiming to be anybody particularly brilliant, but on this particular issue, they're just plain wrong. I can go on TV and explain why they're wrong. I would like to see a debate on the ABC... And in that debate, I would like to see the top old-fashioned neoclassical macroeconomists in Australia, by all means, put them on there. Just put Bill Mitchell on the same panel and, and have a, a debate, and he'll wipe the floor with them. And I know he will, because he's 10 times as bright as me, and I'd wipe the floor with them. Let's give the people the chance to hear the best that um, the old narrative has to offer, and then just give us the chance in a calm and polite and rational way in front of lots of people to explain why it's wrong, because it really is now obvious. I'm not saying these people are stupid or anything. They just, so far, have not bothered to look into the nitty-gritty of how a modern monetary system works, and so consequently they're carrying around in their heads some fallacies which they take as self-evident truths, when in fact they're not true at all. If... The established or the orthodox view of economics starts entertaining the reality of the situation, which is explained far better by modern monetary theory. It's going to turn a lot of their previous positions on their heads. It's very difficult for senior economists, first of all, who've been peddling this, there's something good about a budget surplus, or the government has a debt that we ought to be paying down, or anything along that line, which is nonsense. It would take uh, quite a lot of courage to stand up in front of people and say, I'm sorry, I know I'm Professor Somebody or Other and I've had all these jobs and all these honours, but I've been completely wrong about this. Something very basic I've been wrong about for decades. People have followed my advice and it's been disastrous. The mainstream message is so strong and yet so wrong at the same time. The problem that they're facing is that because they've been so adamant in their position, 
they've now dug themselves into a hole that's just too embarrassing to crawl out of. People are beginning to listen, but uh, there are still big barriers to overcome in most of our universities and also amongst our journalists, nearly all of them. There are, uh, there are excellent exceptions to this, like Claire Connolly, but nearly all of them. And I'm afraid as far as our politicians are concerned, but generally speaking, they're scared of the Murdoch press. Uh, this includes the ALP and the Greens. So part of it is just wanting to appear to be as responsible and conservative as the conservatives. The old story is normally in the interest of the conservative side of politics. And the progressive side has been defeatist and defensive for 35 years. They've got in that habit and uh, we're struggling to get them to get out of the habit. Well, hopefully this will help. Thanks, Stephen. Much appreciated. That was Professor Stephen Hale, lecturer at the School of Economics, Faculty of the Professions from the University of Adelaide. We spoke to him a few weeks ago. That was before we spoke to Bill. I just thought it was worth uh, including that part of the interview with him because uh, it's relevant. The, the The reason that the government gets away with such a, a lackadaisical approach to the economy is because the journalists aren't holding them to account. Uh, and we need to challenge journalism to ask the right questions. Anyway, as mentioned uh, earlier, um, Bill Mitchell, uh, apart from being a world-famous and incredibly astute uh, macroeconomist, is also a guitarist in a band called Pressure Drop. He's been playing with them for a number of decades now. So we continue the conversation with Bill, uh, and we asked him about his his musical influence. And so how's Pressure Drop going for you? It's been quite a long project. Your band, Pressure Drop, is it working well? Ah, uh, look, we're 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 in our gentleman phase. Uh, even though we've got a female singer in the band, I live in Newcastle. The band's in Melbourne, so that's one restriction. But we play a few times a month. At the moment, we're unemployed because all of our gigs have been cancelled because of the because of the crisis. And I think the flip side to this whole lockdown from the coronavirus is that after six months, we're going to see such a flurry of musical activity with all these new songs and all these new ventures which have been sitting yeah. there. To- just brimming up. Well, I've been writing all these new songs and rediscovering things, and it's been a really great period in that respect, an introspective era, but we'd much rather be out there playing. I'm interested in your past history, especially with the late Ross Hannaford, who I regard as a bit of a legend. Apparently um, you used to play with him or he was involved with uh, with Pressure Drop? Uh, look, Ross played with Pressure Drop a few times just as a guest player. Uh, we were thinking about getting a band together. We jammed a bit and thought about a band but didn't do that but Ross played with Pressure Drop a few times and he played with my earlier band uh, Flying Saucers a few times. Ross was one of the best field guitarists Australia ever produced. He was a really quirky player that just had a had a great feel. I remember going round to his house one day there he was he had one of those little record players those tiny little portable record players with a whole stack of records on the floor and they were soul, old soul records and R&B records. And uh, he was just sort of jamming along to them and working out lines. And he was such a creative person. Uh, I enjoyed watching him play and he'd have a uh, range of pedals at his uh, feet. He used to create a, a loop and then another loop and, and he'd play over the top, etc. And his board was quite complex and quite sophisticated to the point that he, he had two big red, like play school stop buttons on it. So that if anything got out of hand, and he wasn't quite sure he was, there'd be a big red button there that he'd just press and everything would stop. He was a real uh, equipment geek. He was really interested in sonics, in sound, and uh, 
getting all these different sounds out of his uh, Stratocaster. Whereas I took a different view. I got hardly any pedals. I sort of took the idea that the sounds came out of your fingers and the way in which you played the strings. Uh, thanks very much, Bill, for spending so much time talking to us. Okay, all the best. Get treated like stars 
Take me there. This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station, 3CR, with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fightback Program. Great program. Great guests. <laughs> so that was Take Me Higher by uh, a band called Pressure Drop uh, that has none other than the legendary Bill Mitchell, world-famous economist, uh, on guitar. That's his band. So uh, normally I, I play uh, female bands on this show because I reckon they're better, but this week we're making an exception. You did make the exception, I, didn't I you? I had to make the exception because <laughs> when you have a legendary economist who also plays guitar, you have to give them a break. So... <laughs> A guitar-carrying economist, that's right. And this, the, the song, as, as I said, was Take Me Higher. I don't think you can get much higher when you're speaking about uh, economics than speaking to Bill Mitchell. So it's been a great show, uh, having Stephen uh, kick in from his uh, from his piece last time around and remind us how we need to reset the, the journalistic agenda about uh, what's happening at the moment. Absolutely. You know, it's this whole moment is all about who's going to capture the narrative. It's the lack, the lack of investigative journalism into how the economy works, about how it's misrepresented by mainstream media. They don't understand their economics. <laughs> We're ahead of the curve, Kevin. <laughs> anyway, look, it's been a great show. We've heard from Stephen Hale, Bill Mitchell, uh, Alex North. Um, you've heard from us. We know this stuff isn't rocket science, uh, Anne. And do you know why we know it's not rocket science? Because you and I understand it. Because we can understand it. <laughs> if we can understand it, anybody can understand it. So we're going to spread the message. Anyway, Mafalda's up next. Uh, another great show. Uh, we've had a great time this week. Uh, we, it's been a very interesting time to be uh, talking about this this subject matter um, and uh, we're utilising the opportunity to to the best of our ability. But um, until next time, Anne, which will be in a couple of weeks, um, see you later. See you again, Kevin. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back. Join us the second Friday of each and every month as part of The Sewer Show on 3CR. We thank all our guests... And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. The pleasure was all mine. Oh, no, I insist. The pleasure was mine. Well, it wasn't all yours. I mean, I had a fair degree of pleasure on this show. It was a very pleasurable for me. Oh, no, Kevin, I was highly pleasured. You looked like you were having fun, and it looked very pleasing to you, but I'm just wondering whether I had more fun than you did, because I had a lot of fun. It was very pleasurable. I have to say, it was amazing.